Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog. Today, we're shining our maintainer spotlight on Faraz Abukadije. Faraz is the creator and the maintainer of hundreds of open source projects out there, which have been downloaded hundreds of millions of times each month. Projects like StandardJS, BitMIDI, and WebTorrent, just to name a few. This episode with Faraz continues our maintainer spotlight series, where we dig deep into the life of an open source software maintainer. We're producing this series in partnership with TyLift. Huge thanks to TyLift for making this series possible. For the uninitiated on TyLift, they're the first managed open source subscription that pays the maintainers of the exact open source projects you're using while giving you the commercial support you've been looking for. You can learn more at tylift.com. And now onto the show. So for us, we first met you on the changelog back in 2016, three years ago now. We talked about web torrent. You were creator and maintainer of that project. You're still a maintainer, I assume. Today, uh, we're here to talk to you about all all things maintainery. I should say, since then, you've joined us on JS Party, regular panelist on that show as well. You maintain 100 plus open source projects, which are downloaded 100 plus million times per month, according to your GitHub bio. So you have lots of maintainery things to talk about. First of all, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. It's awesome to be here. So one of the things which we may or may not focus on, but which you shared recently on JS Party for those interested on episode 83, I think it's called an honest conversation about burnout. So you shared your story about maintainer burnout in open source. So for those interested to go deep into that, uh, definitely listen to that episode. But for us, if you want to give a, just a quick brief on that, uh, it might be useful to get things started. Yeah. So in that episode, I think we talked about different kinds of burnout and I brought the perspective of the open source maintainer to the table there because of course there's other kinds of burnout as well, you know, job burnout or um, some, you know, stuff like that. I think with, with being a maintainer, the source of burnout is at some point your project that you're in charge of just gets too big for any like one person to handle. Um, and, you know, initially the excitement about fixing issues because people, you know, are actually using your project turns into something different. You know, suddenly it's not like, oh my God, I got an issue. Somebody's using my, my code. This is so exciting. And it becomes, oh no, I woke up again and there's another like 15 issues. How come people don't like my code? How come I can't write code that has no bugs? When is this ever going to end? Am I just going to be like fixing bugs in this code until the day that I die? <laughs> um, and it just you know, can sometimes can feel a little bit like, uh, you know, hopeless. Absolutely, no doubt. A, a large part of your story and one shared, I mean, it resonates because it happens so often. It's it's one of the reasons why even just by circumstance or happenstance, this show so often is focused on things like burnout and sustainability because it's systemic or it's endemic across so many of us. I was looking at your projects on GitHub and you have 132 repos that you personally own. Of those, 123 of them are source repos. So that's like most of them. And then of course, like WebTorrent has its own org. So it's not technically yours, but it's also you know one of your big projects. So it got, got me thinking, are you mostly a maintainer of your own projects or have you contributed to others ever been on the side of contributor to open source? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I definitely think I've done more of the creating projects from scratch uh, to solve my own problems and then you know becoming a maintainer of those. There is one time when I 
did a, a bit of contribution to something else, which was Browserify, um, which is you know a package for taking your JavaScript code and bundling it up so that it can work in a web browser. Yeah, but besides that, yeah, I think that's that's actually an interesting point. I've sort of come at it from like I'm going to make this stuff because it's useful for me, and I'm going to put it out there, and then people just ended up you know using it, and then I became kind of responsible for keeping it in good shape. What about starting out? Like, how did you even get into open source, sometimes the path for maintainers, somewhat even accidental, that you intend to be, in quotes, an open source software maintainer? No, I, d- I don't think I did. I mean, I, I think I admired open source and I saw it as this thing that like really great programmers could do. And I didn't really understand that anybody could publish open source at first. I, so I started my first sort of use of like, where I remember actually installing like open source was when I was doing Ruby on Rails in college. And I remember whenever I had a problem, I would just Google it and it would install this package and it solves your problem. And I remember, I remember I knew that somebody wrote that and I remember thinking like, they must be really, really good. And it's almost like some kind of secret society that you have to, you know, be inducted into or something. And I I didn't really understand the process for that. And um, it, it wasn't really a thing I thought I could do. But then I think where that started to change was, I don't remember how I, I stumbled upon this, but I found a YouTube video where this guy named Paul Irish, who does a lot of uh, JavaScript stuff, and I think he works on, on the Chrome team now, he posted a video about himself just going through the, the source code of jQuery and like line by line and just talking about different, different aspects of it. Um, and I think he called it 10 things I learned from jQuery, from looking at the jQuery source. And then he did like another video where he said 10 more things I learned from looking at the jQuery source. So I watched those. And I think it made it clear to me that like, oh, this is actually a thing that I could understand and that it's totally possible for, for somebody, you know, if they had the time and they, and they, and they you know, knew enough things that, that they could do this. And so I, I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll be able to do that. And that's when I got like the first seed of the idea that maybe if I get really good, I'll be able to do this someday. Around what year was this, just timeline-wise? This was, uh, I was in college. I think it was like my, my second to last year or my last year of college. So that would be like 2011 or 2012. So that's still in the, you know, rise or sort of reemergence of open source with GitHub. Because I think, you know, you speak to this exclusivity kind of factor. And I think some of that is just sort of like, just capability. Like we used to live in a system where it was just harder to collaborate on code. And now it's gotten easier and easier to actually even publish ideas too. You know, thinking mm-hmm. of source code as an idea, for example. So GitHub has really changed that a lot for, I would say, the future of software. Because while you may have come in the game, you know, 2010, 2011 for us, you know, GitHub came on the scene around 2018, you know, 2008. And that was sort of like the, the beginning of, uh, you know, open source moving fast. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that was really a big change. I mean, I wasn't really around uh, before and I wasn't contributing to open source before GitHub, but I definitely feel like GitHub has changed things. I mean, the ease with which you can publish stuff and the fact that, you know, anyone can open an issue on your code (laughs) is, I guess that's pretty paradigm shifting because, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's like, so much easier now to get involved. You can, you know, you don't have to just send code to like an email list or something and, and get people to review it that way. You can, you can just send it directly to the person and it's a standardized process for every project instead of this like bespoke thing where you have to go to the website and read about what is this project's process. Everybody has a different way, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think that's actually part of the reason why um, a lot more maintainers are getting burned out because this is one of those things where it's like a blessing and a curse. Like it's obviously good that more people can get involved and, you know, 
we lower the barrier to entry, but uh, it also means that you're going to get, you know, as a maintainer, you're going to get way more issues from people who have put in a lot of the time, put in like less effort into their issues and just say like, it broke, fix, please, you know, like with like no information. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, can't really help you. Or like, you know, you just get way more. Yeah, just pe- people who are like, like less invested. Uh, but of course, the good that comes with, with that is, is that, you know, you get way more just people who, who could have never, you know, would have never thought of contributing before who like find a, a GitHub page and open the code and crack it open and say, oh, wow, like I actually can do this. This is cool. So all of the projects that you have out there, I mentioned WebTorrent and Standard appear to be the two biggest in just in terms of, you know, stars or whatever, um, and maybe effort. But I'm curious, which ones are those or which ones are the, which ones require the most hands-on maintenance to this day? Are those the ones where you're, you're actively maintaining or are they passive? Tell us about, you know, the burden and which, pro- which of your projects bear the most burden? So yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question because um, it's not ob- it's it wasn't obvious at first to me like what projects would end up taking the most time and, and which which wouldn't. You know, obviously with a, with a hundred project with more than a hundred projects, if each one was taking a, a bunch of time, it obviously wouldn't really work. So most of those aren't that much work. Uh, most of those are just um, a package that just does one thing. Uh, very clear. It's very clear what it does. It has you know an API that isn't going to change. Although maybe now that you know. Notice switching from callbacks, you know, callback first pattern to promises. Maybe they all need to, a lot of them need to change. But and I'm starting to do a little bit of work on that. But yeah, in general, you know, the idea is that that those types of packages they don't change very often. Like either they work or they don't. And then you know, usually usually they just change if if there's like some kind of an API that's deprecated that you use. You know, or if like the entire ecosystem changes, it's like a paradigm of like how you you know how you interact with stuff. But the the, the packages that really take up your time are ones where it's less clear what they should be doing and it's much more of a opinion thing or a taste thing or, you know, or where the, the API surface area is quite large. And so it's like, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, should we add this feature? Does this feature belong in the library or does it not? You know, that, that kind of a discussion wouldn't happen on a package that just does one thing. Like you would just say, sorry, you know, if somebody had you know, proposed adding something to it that just didn't make sense, it's very simple. You know, you say, no, this doesn't belong here. Make that a different package you know, problem solved. With those larger projects, it's sort of debatable. And so you, you end up spending a lot of time trying to decide whether to add something or, or not. You usually have a huge list of features that you haven't really gotten to yet that you want to get to. There's a lot of focus on making the thing easy to consume for people. So, you know, you try you try a lot of experiments with, with how the API should work and you change that over time. And and then also like WebTorrent, you know, is built on a foundation of pretty experimental technology that's changing. So that sort of ends up causing a lot of um, sort of shifting under, you know, if you build your project on a, on a shifting foundation, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of work to, you know, keep, keep things working as the browsers evolve the standards. Right. Well, it seems like most of your stuff, I mean, maybe standard isn't because we should mention standard as a coding style, linter, et cetera, which once you have certain opinions that are enforced, I'm not sure exactly how standard works, but I assume that's relatively stable once it's set in stone. But a lot of your other stuff are built on the web, you know, the web projects, uh, aside from some of your websites and stuff like BitMedi, which I guess those might be moving targets as well. I guess my point here is it seems like lots of your stuff is on a shifting foundation, right? Like not not very much of the web is standing still. And so BitRot's very much a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, pure functions and, you know, it doesn't need to be really, doesn't need a lot of active work. But yeah, anytime you're interacting with like a web API, um, that stuff shifts all the time. Can you speak to, since we're talking about these two projects in particular, WebTorrent and, and Standard, 
I'm noticing on both of them, you have this notion of sponsors and one of them being brave, which is the browser I tend to use day to day. What's it like? What, what has open source enabled for you? You know, these kind of connections you've, I'm sure you've spoken with folks at brave. There's some sort of relationship there. Can you share the backstory there? Yeah. So uh, I think the story there is that Brendan Ike, the creator of JavaScript, he's the CEO of Brave, at some point reached out to me because he liked the WebTorrent stuff I was doing. And so we got dinner and just talked. Wait, so you had dinner with Brendan Ike? Yeah. Wow. There you go, boys and girls. See, that's what can happen to you if you're dinner with the inventor of the language. <laughs> yeah, so we talked about like how... So, so the, the cool thing about Brave is, is that because it's a new browser, they can sort of do things that other browsers would be a little bit afraid to do. Um, meaning like uh, they, can, they can sort of take bigger technical risks. You know, if, if, you, if you have a browser that's like huge and has, you know, billions of users and you're going to be very sort of conservative about what you ship to them, you want to make sure it's like really solid and you're really worried about like, you know, what can go wrong. But with Brave, you know, they were building this browser from scratch. And so they were, they were like, you know, looking for features that could differentiate Brave from other browsers and were willing to sort of add like new protocols and new sort of ideas to the browser. And that's where our collaboration came from. So the idea there is that just like how a browser can open up a PDF file and show you the PDF directly there in the browser without requiring you to have another program installed on your computer for that. We wanted to make Brave do the same thing with torrent files. So if you go to a site and there's a torrent file there or there's um, a magnet link, which is you know just another form of a torrent file, and you click on that, instead of it sort of saying, you know, popping you out to some program that you have on your computer or, or just telling you, you know, it doesn't work because you don't have a, a torrent program, it will just work right there in the browser. It'll just say, okay, this is a torrent. Do you want to begin torrenting this? And you can say start and then there it goes. Wow. Built right in. Built right in. Yeah, that's the idea. And so, um, so yeah, back in 2016, I think uh, we, uh, me and a friend uh, went to Brave for like a couple of weeks and we built in WebTorrent into Brave. Uh, it, it only took a few weeks of work because, you know, m- most of the work was already there in the WebTorrent library. But yeah, and they paid us for that. It was like a contracting gig. Actually, one of the few times I've actually gotten paid for my work on WebTorrent. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think that's, ba- I think really that and then the sponsorship, uh, a couple of sponsors that, that just put in money for their, you know, to get their logo on the website. Right. Yeah. But I'm actually back at Brave right now. So it's been a couple of years and they, uh, they have me back there now for this for a couple of weeks this like summer. Right now, at literally right now or like time frame right now? Like right now. Yeah. Like uh, I started uh, working there again um, last week and I'm going to probably be there another week after this. So it's like two or three weeks total. So they pull you in for like new features, new ideas, brainstorming how Brave is actually using WebTorrent, feedback loop, et cetera. Yeah, uh, it's 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 bo- both. Yeah, so there's a bunch of new projects they want to look into adding, um, like different kinds of uh, syncing models for doing browser sync using peer to peer instead of uh, centralized services, uh, and the, so brainstorming some of that stuff, you know, and and other new things, and then also just updating the WebTorrent implementation to make it a little bit more solid and um, add some features that users have been requesting. Yeah, so that's one of the cool things. If you're if you're the if you're the maintainer of a project and you have a lot of experience, then um, that is like one model for how to how to kind of sustain the open source is, is to have people who use your code, um, you know, call you in for for expert advice, basically, it's, you know, you know, even though they could figure it out themselves, they sometimes they prefer to just have the, the person who works on it to just come in there. Why not? If you could, right? Yeah, it's one of the funnest things I've done. It's definitely really cool. They're, they're really good people I like working with them. So this is kind of like a hero story. What about a war story? Something that other maintainers can sort of like latch on to something that's like you're in the trenches you got some buddy knuckles you're fighting the fight you know what's that for you what's a war story for you hmm a maintainer war story i haven't really thought of that before (laughs) 
Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got one story. Um, maybe that, uh, maybe it'll be interesting. Back when I was getting started, actually, I don't know how much, how, how far back to go here because I could, I could go, could go back to the very beginning. It might be too much information. Your birth. Yeah. So <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> so, so yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll start with, I went to this conference called Real Time Conf. It was, it was back in 2013. It was first conference I ever spoke at. And, um, I was giving a talk on WebRTC, which I had been learning a lot about uh, at the time. So I did a company called PeerCDN. Uh, this is what I did right after college, before I had really gotten into open source. Uh, I guess I will go a little bit into the backstory of that since it's come up now. Um, <laughs> is we're, that okay? We're pulling it out of you. All right. Keep going. Yeah. So basically, I, I had this kind of mischievous idea that I wanted to figure out what could I do with people's browsers that they wouldn't expect me to be able to do. Um, so like, how can I push these APIs to their limits? Which by the way is funny because I still I still think that way. If you know about my annoying website, you know, theannoyingsite.com. It's, it's very simple. Very- I say mischievous ideas is kind of your whole brand. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> that also gives us a chance to plug GS Party once again because you actually spoke about that, uh, oh, yeah. that annoying website on a episode of GS Party, I would say at least a year ago, I bet. But continue, continue. So I was thinking of different things I could do. And one of the things I was really curious about was, could I do computation using you know, WebGL or, or um, workers to do useful work on people's browsers? And you sort of use it as a distributed computer. Yeah, so I looked into that and the browser wasn't really quite fast enough. So I, 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 then, I then discovered WebRTC, which lets you do peer-to-peer connections between browsers. And uh, the idea that I had was, why, why don't we connect a bunch of sites together and build something kind of like a torrent network where the resources for a site can come from um, from the other people on the site and we can reduce the cost of running a site. And so I ran with that idea for a little bit and tried to make a company out of it. Um, but I learned a, learned a ton about how not to do a company, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, like one of the big problems we, we, you know, we had was just being too focused on building stuff, writing code and not really talking to customers and seeing if there are people who would want to ever buy this stuff. Mm. So um, a little bit of time went by there and um, we didn't really have any customers, but we spent about a year just building a bunch of really cool technology, learning all about WebRTC and making some cool demos. And um, in the end, we got acquired by Yahoo, uh, which was a good outcome for us because we didn't have any customers. And, um, you know, we worked on this thing for about a year. So it was a really exciting outcome where we got to go and just, you know, basically join join the video team at, at Yahoo and um, uh, made a little bit of cash, obviously. Uh, and that's actually what... Um, enabled me to spend a lot of time on open source later um, and, and not not worry about you know, having a job. And I could just sort of fully devote myself to, you know, for, for years, just working on stuff and, 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 and you know, giving it away and, and not, not having to be, you know, worried about making ends meet. But um, anyway, so back, getting back back on track. So at the end of, so right about when that happened, I, ga- I gave this talk at uh, Real-Time Conf and I was talking about WebRTC and how cool it is and what you could build with it. And um, at the very end of that talk, I mentioned the idea for WebTorrent. Um, because I, I knew that Yahoo was going to buy, you know, was, was going to have all the technology we had worked on. And my concern was that, you know, that some of the ideas, uh, you know, of connecting everybody's browsers together and making, making a really amazing uh, peer-to-peer network that can, you know, decentralize control of things. You know, that, that was a really cool idea. And um, I didn't want it to die with, you know, with this acquisition. So I, I, I was like, what if we rebuilt PeerCDN basically, right? We rebuilt it from scratch, but made the goal instead of saving, saving money on bandwidth, we made the goal decentralization and we made it match the BitTorrent protocol as much as possible because we know that already works and that has a lot of users and there's all this content on there and there's just, um, there's a big community of people. So we could just make this, basically bring the BitTorrent protocol and put it, put it into the browser, right? 
Mm-hmm. So it was just an idea that I thought would be cool to work on and I wanted to start working on it. So I threw in this slide at the very, very end of the talk, you know, like the last one minute of it or 30 seconds. And I said, I have this idea to make BitTorrent on the web. Um, here's what it would do. If you think this is a cool idea, come talk to me. And um, I threw it out there as just this like thing that uh, would be, you know, I wanted people to come and just, I wanted to find collaborators basically. But one of the people in the audience misunderstood what I said. And um, I, I did have a GitHub repo up with a readme in it that just said <laughs> what the project would do one day. And he tweeted it and he had quite a few followers who like clicked through this link and said, you know, dude, there's no code here. What is this project? And uh, so then he messaged me and was like, dude, I thought you had code. Why did I tweet this out to all my followers? There's nothing here. Uh, and I was like, dude, you, you could have looked at the, at the readme, man. Like it was clear that it was, it was just an idea. Uh, <laughs> so this guy like basically launched, the, launched WebTorrent for me, like, you know, before, wow. it was, before there was actually any code. I think it was a good thing that he did that because I don't know if I would have built it otherwise. Mm. You know, it was just this idea. It was kind of, it wasn't clear whether people would, would, would want to use it or anything like that. But, but because of their reaction, all the people who, was, you know, who started opening issues and saying, this is a cool idea. You know, I, really, I really think you should do this. I, I got really motivated and, um, and I really like, wanted to actually build it at that point. That's a really great story. The, the, the thing I find funniest about it is you inadvertently fixed the problem. So the problem, your classic blunder was, you know, you built all this stuff without customers for pure CDN. And then by way of the slide, basically you got all these customers without any software. I mean, quote unquote customers, right? Like you proved the demand for WebTorrent without a single line of code, like a readme, kind of by happenstance by somebody tweeting out. But that's, yeah. that's awesome. That's the way you do it right there. Yeah, launch first without anything, you know, vaporware. That's the way to go, right? You should do a new talk. Launch without code, get customers. I mean, this is actually typical typical startup advice that people always give, but you know, I I never experienced it firsthand. I think there's just far too many people who I don't want to generalize here, but I I think I guess I will have to generalize a little bit. <laughs> As technologists, we get really excited about code. You know, we want to spend all of our time writing code, and and so we can sort of sometimes just get way too caught up in actually just just only doing code and not really thinking if anyone's ever going to use it or if it has any value to, to other people. And I don't want to say that all code has to have you know, a, a utility to other people because sometimes you just want to do an art project or you just want to make something because it, it feels good to, to work on it. And you know, that, that's great. But if you think that people will use your, use your thing eventually, it's important to show it to people early and often and to get people to, to see it and to give you feedback and to confirm that they're, that they're actually excited, that there's people who are actually excited um, and, yeah. and, to, and to, to hone how you explain it to people. So just to make sure you can actually explain, explain what you're doing. Because so many projects can't even do, like a lot of, you know, I just came back from the, from the Decentralized Web Summit, which is this conference where all these different peer-to-peer projects were, were, were presenting. And, you know, so many people there could, couldn't explain what they were building in like a few sentences. Mm-hmm. You could even give them a few paragraphs and they still couldn't explain <laughs> why it was useful to anybody. Yeah. This really speaks to the why and the how. Right, the importance of the why to gain followers is not always as critical as the how. Right, the code is somewhat the how, but the why is what I think is what you put out there with that last slide of here's why I want to do it, here's how I think I could do it, and the why was very crucial to success of WebTorrent, as you said. Mm-hmm. And 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 to and to get people who are interested to come and find you, you know, to, to by putting it out there. There are all these collaborators who sort of came 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 out and you know said you know actually introduced themselves to me and said you know hey this is great I want to help 
you know, you can't, you can't really do that if you're just coding away by yourself. If I could try to generalize your generalization <laughs> um, to go one more step. If you take code as art off the table and say we're talking about utilitarian code, there's really two kinds of projects. There's one where you're scratching your own itch, right? And if it's that, if it's that style, then the right methodology is, well, right, create the back scratcher. Like I got an itch, I'm going to create the code first, and then if other people find it useful, now I have a successful open source project. And then there's the other kind, which is I need to find people with an itch that I would like to scratch. Or like, I have an idea of a really cool new back scratcher. Do I build it and then hope people have the itch have, a, have the itch on their back? <laughs> really killing the, killing the metaphor. But do I build first or do I get the idea like out there the first? And in that case, it's foolish to actually build the thing first. I mean, you can try to do both at the same time. That's the best. If you can, if you can be scratching your own itch and you know everybody else is dying for a solution. I mean, that's actually oh, a yeah. perfect situation. That would be nice. In a perfect world. So as a meta note, I love how Faraz's war story is like, I won the war, it was easy, you know, like everything went great at the end. It's got a great, it's, it's a successful Maybe I don't understand story. what war story means. <laughs> war story is, is usually whenever things don't go right. Battles, you know, you're, you're sweating, your blood. Usually it's an opportunity to complain about some users who are like <laughs> yeah. opening issues that you hate. I, I mean, I guess I have a story of, Standard JS, when that first launched, there was a bunch of haters. That's probably more appropriate war story, right? Well, standard JS, because it is about style and, and whatnot, I assume it's open to the most bike shedding and, uh, of any project out there, right? Because it's like this style's good or bad for every little aspect of the code you write. Is that what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, initially, the, the goal of standard wasn't to tell everybody to write their code like the way I write my code. <laughs> the goal was to to save time on WebTorrent on pull requests where people were sending in these, these pull requests that I wanted to accept, but I couldn't because they just you know completely didn't follow the style guide of, of, of the project. So the goal was, okay, I want to just, I mean, what I should have done is probably just added ESLint or I think at the time uh, it was JSHint that was popular. I should have just added that to the project and just moved on with my life. But the problem I faced was if you use JS Hint, then you had to add this config file to like your each of the projects to sort of say what the style rules were. And this was like a hundred line file with like all these options. And I didn't want to make like a bunch of copies of it and put it into every different package. And so I was like, oh, there's a solution to this. It's, some, it's make another package. Every problem in computer science can be solved with another level of indirection, right? With one more package, exactly. Exactly. So I just made another package and I put the the little you know the little config file for the linter in there. Yeah. And um and then I just made every different WebTorrent project require that project. And then the question was, what do I call this package? And so I was going to call it like WebTorrent style or Feroz style or something like that. But then I was like, wait a minute, I should search for dictionary words and see if there's like a word relating to like, you know, code enforcement or something. And I, so I almost named it like, I think enforcer or something or something like that. But anyway, then I, then I found the word standard that was available. And I thought, ah, I should call it standard because that will annoy people. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought that it would annoy people. From the creator of the most annoying website <laughs> comes a linter of, that's going to annoy people. Well, I mean... The thing is, it is, a, it is a code standard, right? So the name standard by itself shouldn't have offended that many people. But then, then I was like, okay, since I'm naming it standard, let's just go all out. Let's just call this JavaScript standard style instead of like Feroz's style or something. And then just that, like that title of the readme just set everybody off. They were like, 
how dare you? How dare you call yourself the standard? Are you a standards body? Is this part of ECMAScript? Are you part of TC39? Uh, and I was like, I'm not saying I'm any of those things. I'm just saying that this is a style guide and you're free to use it if you want. <laughs> if you want? If you want, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, the thing that helped me with that, at that time was like, say, I, I was, I did get quite a lot of backlash, but then there were, there were these uh, friends of mine who, who thought that standard was a great idea and they sort of dealt with all of the people on, on GitHub. They responded to all the issues and sort of just, you know, said, you know, you guys are being haters if you don't want to use it you don't have to use it take it or leave it you know uh and and they sort of dealt with that for me and that made me feel really good it made me feel like i wasn't like that i should i shouldn't you know apologize and like delete it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. you chose a provocative name you got a provocative response and that's cool that's how it Mm -hmm. works yeah and the 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 funny thing is that like the main advantage of standard i thought was going to be that you didn't have to include the same um like big configuration file in every one of your projects but it turned out that actually the, the real benefit that people liked about it was that they could just adopt it without having to make all the decisions themselves. You know, and I didn't even know that that was going to be what people used it for. Sure. Yeah, they're, they're actually, they were adopting it because they, they liked that they could tell their team who was fighting about style rules and changing the ESLint configuration constantly and wasting a lot of time. They could just say, hey, hey everybody, there's this thing called standard that we can just use and we can just end all these these bike shetty discussions. It's a huge win. That was actually the huge win. It was actually because it was called standard. It could just end a bunch of fights in different people's companies, which, you know, who would have known that was actually the the real benefit, you know? (laughs) And we've seen languages with, you know, official implementations, adding formatter tools to the, to the toolkit for that exact reason, like go fumt, as they like to pronounce it, (laughs) the go formatter. Uh, Elixir recently added a formatter as part of its mix tools so that these conversations just don't have to happen. Like this is the format. You follow it or you can have your own style if you want. We're not going to enforce you to do that. But if you want to just follow the style, run the tool, it's going to reformat your code and we don't have to have these bike shed conversations. It's interesting in the JavaScript land that there's no you know, one implementation to rule them all. Um, maybe to a certain degree there is practically, but you know, there's not a, a single company or entity that runs it. It's all based on boards and yeah. what have you implementers but uh, here comes a a one-off javascript library from a guy named Faraz. <laughs> you know just calls it the standard who do you think he is come on now yeah who did you think you were for us yeah i mean it was it was called for what did brendan ike have to say when you uh when you talked about he adopted it at brave well there you go yeah. it's the standard now yeah now it is the standard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly the, the the inventor of the language uh, endorsed it. And then also, believe it or not, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, also uses standard. So okay. there we go. That's all the street cred you need. I saw a sticker on his computer at the D-Web Summit in 2016. I was actually the one who gave him the sticker. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Disclosure. I, I put it on his laptop. <laughs> no, no, no. I gave it to him because I knew he used it. Uh, I, saw it I saw it on his GitHub. And then I, I was like, yo, you should, you should take this sticker. And then he put it on his laptop. No, I mean, um, yeah, I would not have guessed that that was really going to be the benefit of, of standard, um, that, that it would end all those style debates for people. Um, I mean, the, the, the flip side of that is that I basically took on all the style debates for other people. I mean, so now instead of uh, every company, you know, fighting out whether or not they should, you know, put the curly brace on the same line or on the next line or, you know, whatever, all these, all these random discussions that... Same line. Yeah. Yeah, obviously same line, yeah. I mean, but... <laughs> But uh, instead of instead of every company having to have this fight separately, the idea is like we'll just take it to the standard repo and have the fight there, and then 
decision gets made and then we can all stop fighting about it in all the different companies. But that just means that my life became a lot more about talking about style when the whole point was that I was I was trying to avoid <laughs> writing style feedback in pull requests on WebTorrent. Mm. So it, it, it sort of backfired on me. And I might want to be all time backfires. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, well, it helped a lot of other people. So I'll, I'll take that, you know, backfire. All right, I hope you've been enjoying this conversation with Faraz for our Maintainer Spotlight series. Special thanks to Tide Lift. We're producing this podcast series in partnership with Tide Lift because we both deeply care about supporting the maintainers of open source software. Our goal with this series is to dig deep into the life of an open source software maintainer, to learn what challenges they face, the highs and lows of being a maintainer, how they financially support their projects, how they maintain balance between life, day job, and open source, and also how they're supporting and encouraging contributions and community. For the uninitiated on Tidelift, they're the first managed open source subscription model that pays the maintainers of the exact open source projects you depend on while giving you the commercial support you've been looking for. Tidelift's mission is simple, to support the open source software you depend on and pay the maintainers. Learn more at Tidelift.com. Speaking of standards, at least on GitHub and actually on the standard repo, you've got the newest standard for sustaining and uh, supporting projects, which is the sponsor button, the funding.yaml file. What has that done for standard itself? Like, you know, can you speak to uh, GitHub sponsors or just the sustainability of your projects? You mentioned before, you know, being a brave and that being one of the first times you ever paid for your open source. So can you speak to, you know, the getting paid aspect and what it means to you? Yeah, totally. I mean, so like I mentioned before, I, I I worked on open source, funded mainly by like my savings that I got from from uh, working at Yahoo. So I I um I did that for like a year and saved some money up, and that was sort of what enabled me to to put so much time into open source and to not have to like worry about other things and to to, to not have to sort of squeeze it in after after a, a day job. Um, so that was really great. But I mean, that, that obviously can't last forever. Um, savings run out. Reality hits hits you eventually. Uh, basically, it, it was, I think it was like the beginning of 2018 where I was like, okay, this isn't going to work indefinitely. I need to, I need to think about how to get paid for open source or else I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to keep doing it. I mean, there's obviously other collaborators who help, who help out with stuff, but there's no one really working full time on WebTorrent and on, um, on any, uh, any of the code I've created. And so my concern was that like, this stuff would just get unmaintained if I if I left it, and it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be in as good good of shape as as I would want it to be. And so I I started having these feelings of guilt of like you know uh, like I can't just leave I can't just abandon this stuff I can't just you know not work on it anymore. I was like okay the solution is I have to just get paid if I could find some way to get paid so that I could work on this like at least you know ten hours a week or twenty hours a week something like that I could really do this thing that I enjoy keep all this code in really good shape that would be that would be ideal right. So I started exploring different funding models in the beginning of 2018, uh, I started, I made uh, this package called Thanks, which you could run it in your node project. You'd run NPX, you know, space, thanks, and I would just execute this thanks program. And it, what it did is it would go through your package, your, your package.json file, 
and it would find all the packages you're depending upon and their dependencies. And it would then it would look up and see, are any of the authors of these packages currently seeking donations on a, a platform like Patreon or Open Collective? And if so, it would um, it would just, you know, it would print out a list of like people you could donate to. And then I started a Patreon as well to sort of solicit donations from from my users. And I thought, you know, this would be a great solution for for funding it because you know, people would just be like happy to happy to give you money for your for the work that they rely on, you know? Turned out it didn't really work out. Uh <laughs> quite as, as, as nicely as that because people, I don't know, people don't, I think people are just too used to getting stuff for free and it, it's this optional step that they can do afterwards. And it's just, it got, you know, a few people ran it. It raised awareness of, of, you know, of what packages people were depending upon and stuff like that. It didn't really help me at all. Um, the main, the main person I think who benefited was Sindra Sorhas, the, no, the Node.js contributor, because he shows up at the top of pretty much everyone's list of mm. uh, thanks yeah so because he, he just has so many of these tiny packages that everybody uses so it would, it would just it would say you know pretty much every time somebody ran it it would say you should donate to cindersaurus uh and uh i i looked at his patreon um like statistics and you can see a little blip where his his um monthly money went up by like 200 dollars a month right when i released thanks come on Sindra, send some of that back ross's way <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah. So so then I, I started promoting my Patreon like on Twitter and trying to get other people to to make Patreons around that time. And um, I was like moderately successful, I would say, but not enough to to um, allow me to work on open source full time or even even part time and living in the Bay Area where I live. It's just too expensive. So yeah, I was kind of bummed by that. I like the potentially accidental standard, additional standard here, I guess. Because you've got frost.org slash thanks, which I think is pretty cool as a software maintainer, an open source software maintainer, to have this sort of, you know, whomever you are thinking. You know, you get your platinum sponsors there, your gold sponsors there, people who are helping you maintain this lifestyle of being a, an open source software maintainer. So you're, you're not only putting your thanks out to the world, but you're also inviting those to come in to support you via Patreon, GitHub sponsors, even Bitcoin. I think this is an interesting thing that I'm curious if more software maintainers who desire to be sustained by their community could do to, to enable this. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it is a thing that you can do, but it's I've thought about this a bunch. So I guess I can I can list off a few things that people should keep in mind if they if they want to go this route. Please do. Yeah. Things that make it hard. So so the, the first is that um, companies can't donate money to people in general. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a lot harder for like a company to, to do a donation than it is for them to just buy a product. So if, 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 if I was selling something for like, you know, um, like I was selling a license to a text editor, like Sublime Text, you know, for $100, then pretty much any developer at that company could just buy that editor and then expense the $100 to their company and their company would have no problem paying for that editor because it's, it's making their developers more productive, right? Um, so, so, but, 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 if, but if, that, if that same developer goes to their, to their boss and says, you know, hey, we used code by this guy named Faraz and a bunch of these other people and, um, you know, they're asking for donations. Can we donate to them? That, their manager is going to be like, well, we can't, how do we do that? There's, we need an invoice saying that we're paying for something. We're not, we're not a charity, we're a company. So we have to be buy, we can buy things for, for ourselves, but we can't just give money away. And, 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 and even if they, if, they, if, they, if, they, if they really do, you know, if that manager happens to be one of the few managers who really, you know, would appreciate the, the value of open source and want to, do, want to donate, and they go to their, you know, CFO or whatever, their, their finance officer, and, you know, say, say they want to 
do this, that person's going to be like, you know, well, like we can't, who's this person? We can't just give money to a random person. That's not like, how are we going to explain that to our, to our shareholders or to, to, to our, on our, on our taxes or whatever. So like one big problem is just what are you actually asking for from these companies? If you're not, if you're not giving them something that they can just pay for, then they're not going to be able to support you. That, that's like one huge lesson I learned. So like an example, like what can you actually ask for? Well, you can say, okay, this is not a donation. This is um, a sponsorship. You're buying advertising basically on, on the project's website. You're going to get your logo there and you're going to put a link to your site. And we're, we're going to say, you know, you support open source. Right. You're not paying for the support. You're paying for the advertising of your support. Yeah. And that's something that they kind of understand because they actually already have a budget for advertising. Yeah. Um, that was a lesson that took me way too long to learn. It might also um, increase your pool of money to access as well, because sometimes advertising and marketing budgets can be bigger or brand association budgets can be bigger than just simply the donations pile, for example, which seems to be pretty small or non-existent. Yeah. Or very hard to execute on. The other thing that was sort of sad about the, I mean, the, the donations thing was like a bunch of the people who were donating to me were other open source maintainers. <laughs> so it was like not really accomplishing the goal. I was like, and then and then I would donate back to them. So, so like if, if, some, if, you know, if somebody, so we, were, we had this like a bunch of this like really weird ring where like uh, we were all donating like ten or twenty dollars to each other in like a big circle, and so the, <laughs> it looked like we were getting you know like four hundred dollars a month, but it was actually just I was giving four hundred you know a bunch of money to like everybody, and then they were giving it to everybody else, and it was all just coming back to to us. So it wasn't really uh, you know I mean, and then there's there's obviously other nice individuals who who also were, were doing some donations, but I I just think that you know the main people who have to sort of fix this problem are going to be companies, and we have to find a way to make it so that they want to want to pay for something that where they're actually getting value from it. Um, and, and that, that will be a much easier conversation to have with companies than like what we've been trying, which is where we say, here's all of our code for free. You can do whatever you want with it. Oh, and by the way, could you please consider giving something back like that? That conversation, um, doesn't work if the goal is to get paid to work on open source. It just, it just doesn't work. I want to ask you about what's working and what's not working. Before that, I'd like to do a quick disclaimer. So on your standard standard you have in the Funny and YAML, GitHub for OS, Patreon for OS, Tidelift, NPM standard. So you are a Tidelift supporter. This series is Maintainer Spotlight. We are doing in partnership with Tidelift. Uh, they are sponsors of this episode. That being said, we are not required to talk about Tidelift. We can say whatever we like. We did not invite Faros on the show because he is on Tidelift. Uh, we're here to talk to Frost because he's an awesome maintainer. And we have complete editorial control. I want to make that super clear for our listeners that this is not like a Tidelift pay-to-play kind of a, a show. It's just in sponsorship with them, in partnership with them. And we can say what we like. Frost, you can say whatever you like. So having said all that, you have these different things you're trying. You're, you're an experimenter. You're a tinkerer. I'm curious if GitHub sponsors is like a game changer for you. If you think it will be, maybe not yet. Curious how Tidelift's going. You, you mentioned how Patreon's kind of going. Where does your sustainability stand and what do you think the future looks like? Yeah, so uh, I think that obviously like, you know, getting money from companies I think has to be the strategy that we adopt going forward. And so one route is contacting companies directly. And that's what I've, I've sort of tried. It sort of works if you are persistent and you're willing to you know, email a lot of people and explain to them, the benefits of getting their logo on your on your open source projects page, you can sort of you know end up getting you know I don't know a few thousand dollars a month if you really work hard at it. Obviously, the downside to that is now you're spending a bunch of time emailing people and like having meetings about you know sponsorship issues instead of like coding. And I think a lot of maintainers just don't want to do that. So I think that's where the promise of something like Tidelift comes in. The idea there is like you know instead of maintainers having to interface with all these companies and try to explain to them why they should 
you know, why they should be caring about their, their dependencies and, you know, and the, and the shape that those dependencies are in. Highlifts can just go out and do that. And they have a sales team of people who are just, you know, basically going out and talking to companies and trying to convince, convince them to pay for open source. And then, and, and then they turn around and they give like half of the money that they collect from those companies straight to the maintainers. They, I think they've promised that they're going to always give at least half of their profits like for, you know, indefinitely. That's a cool model because now suddenly like I don't have to worry about talking to people. I don't have to worry about emailing people and doing all this sort of salesy stuff, which, you know, I mean, I don't mind doing it because I, I like to push myself to, to, to learn new skills and to, you know, to go outside of my comfort zone. But I know a lot of maintainers like don't want to be spending their time, like basically being a salesperson. So, uh, so, so this is actually a promising model, I think. The way Tidelift does it is they look at sort of what um, their their customers, their subscribers are using. And so they look at the like what packages are their customers relying on. And then they say they have some kind of an algorithm that sort of just tries to calculate like uh, how much uh, of the money that they've collected should go to the different dependencies. Um, and then you just, as a maintainer, you just sort of sign up and collect that every month. Um, and there's really very little you have to do in return at the moment for, um, you just sort of collect collect it. So I'm right now making like, about $500 a month from that, from Tidelift. So it's great, but you know, like all these things are all just like the thing that's the thing that's not ideal about all these different approaches is just that, you know, if I were to go just get a job at Google or something, I mean, I could make way more money, right? <laughs> I know this, this, is, this isn't about money. I mean, this is not really about like about trying to get rich, but it's just about, you know, if we want open source to be, is it, how, how weird is it that like open source creates all this value for people, right? And the, the people who, who, the people who actually get to capture all this value are like the startups that are built on top of the open source and not the people who actually make the open source. Just like think about how, I mean... If you assume the value is monetary value, right? Because you just said it's not about money and in that case you're saying the value and so the the value in the case of a startup is generally revenue. You know, in the mm-hmm. case of say an Instagram with billions, for example, built on open source. So in that case, if your value prop is simply revenue, then then yeah, that's true. I agree. I mean, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like, um, like, you know, ungrateful about all the things open source has given me. I, I really do think that it's it's been amazing. I mean, I have so many friends everywhere around the world, and it's been really great for for just just me as a person. Like, a such a better programmer. And there's definitely an imbalance. Sorry to cut you off, but I, I just want to speak to your point about the you know the people building profitable or sometimes you know failing companies on top of of open source. There's definitely an imbalance that we see, and I think we all see it, especially from the inside especially with all of our friends are burning out or like struggling and and uh, making these things that huge corporations benefit from and not seeing any kickback. Um, and so I see the imbalance. There's also a side of it like, well, you know, we're open sourcing our code, you know, like yeah. we're giving it away. It's, it's a, a gift to it's the world. Decision. Yeah. And I mean, I, I totally buy that. I want to, I want to give a gift to the world. That's part of, that's like why I got involved is I love the idea of like giving, giving away my code and just like letting anybody do what they want with it. Right. But so there's, that's why it's like a, <laughs> I wouldn't call it a gray area. It's just like, there's conflicting, I have conflicting feelings about it because I built a career around this stuff. And so I've gotten tremendous value out of it. If, if I was, if I was to weigh in the balances, like how much I put in versus how much I've gotten out of open source, I've gotten out a lot more, just individually. And I think most of us can say You're that. Even, for yourself, even those right? of us, I am speaking okay, for myself, speak Jared. Jared. Um, and I'm not a big business who's you know reap, reap, reaping in the profits. 
By the way, I would also I would also agree with sorry yeah sorry to cut you off but I I just want to say I totally agree with that too I I think I even though I put in all this time I I, I think I still have gotten more from open source than I've given definitely so that's what it's, that's what's tricky about it you know it's we all agree that these companies who are I think they're also getting I mean okay I've gotten out more than I put in but I'll just go on a limb and say Instagram Inc or whatever that entity is got out way more than it put in right like especially for speaking in terms of you know monetary value yeah orders of magnitude yes. and so th- that's where we stand and i i think it is uh, the community's job to rally around this issue which is what i think what we're doing and find solutions and um and that's why it's interesting to hear what's working for you because uh as a single maintainer who does have some celebrity and an audience you know, if it's not working for Feroz, then if anybody who's, you know, has the kind of, tra- you know, the person who's running that transitive dependency that nobody even knows about and has a small following, it's really not working for that guy or that gal. Totally agree. Uh, yeah, totally agree. So, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing I always think about is like, I'm fortunate to have like some people who, you know, follow me and I can talk to them about, you know, the, this issue. And, you know, if you if you look at so if you look at the people who are making the most from open source and who are able to sustain themselves the best right now, um, it's not me for sure. Um, but you can look at people like Evan Yu, uh, who I think last I checked was making 16k per month uh, on Patreon. Um, I don't know if he if that's all for him or if that goes if that that goes to other uh, contributors as well. But um, and there's like a couple of other examples of of maybe like Cindersaurus I think is also. Um, doing doing all right and he also lives in thailand which is one of the ways he's he keeps his costs low but you, there's really not that many examples you know you'd think that like the very um, most well-known uh, maintainers would would be doing quite well and then there you know then you could hope that people who are less less good at marketing themselves or or who just don't want to just don't want to spam people on twitter as much mm-hmm. as i do uh, <laughs> um, that those people would, would also be able, be able to make a living doing this but it's just not that it's not the case so it's it's absolutely right that like yeah that, you know that some of the things that make would make it easier for me to, to to do this than other people you know you can actually point to all these advantages I have and even and it's not even working for me so that just tells you that you know it's not going to be a thing that uh, that most people can do full time um, unless they're just lucky enough to to get a job that just you know pays them to do to do open source because I have a decent number of followers and I have I fortunately work on projects which are user facing. So standard JS and WebTorrent are things that users actually intentionally install. There's all these other maintainers who do amazing work that that powers all this stuff, and they aren't making projects that people you know usually directly install. But oftentimes they're still you know they're doing as much work or more work than the than the sort of uh, the user facing stuff. So I mean, good luck. Those people are just you know they, they have a lot harder of a time raising funds because no one even knows that they're depending on this stuff. And the, the the really really paradoxical and un, unfair thing is that the better job that they do as a maintainer, the less that people are going to know that they exist, right? Because the better they do their job, the more invisible their software is. Like their software will, will cause no exceptions, it will cause no errors. So then no one will even bother to know that that's in their dependency tree. Versus if they actually did a bad job and they were you know all kinds of issues being caused by their package, then people would go there and, you know, they'd go to the GitHub page and they would file issues and they would complain and they would at least get to see this readme that where, where, the, where the person could say, you know, hey, by the way, I'm like raising money from, for, for open source. It's just so, it's so unfair. Like it's sort of, it's really hard for those, for those types of projects to, um, to get sustained. 
I have a draft blog post about these people, and I'm comparing them to the offensive line in a football team. I don't know if you, either of you are football fans, but the offensive line is like the most thankless job in football. All you do is you, know, you protect the quarterback or the running back, whoever it happens to be. And when you're doing your job great, nobody notices that you're even there. And then the only time the camera comes on you is when you miss your, you miss your block and the quarterback gets sacked. And then everyone hole. looks at you yeah. like, you dope, what are you doing? And so there's just a thankless thing that only gets focused on when something goes wrong. And that's what these maintainers are. They're just like that. It's, it's a shame. You know, it, it's up to, you know, that's why the quarterback's always thanking the offensive line when, the, when he's getting interviewed after the, after the game's over because they're the ones that, that made it possible. But they don't get any of the glory. They just get all the shame. It's really unfortunate, but it's just there's multiple positions in the game and they play offensive line, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes these people didn't even ask to be, to be maintainers. Yeah. They didn't even try out. They're just like all of a sudden, Hey, you're yeah. on the line, no, get out there. They, they just made a project and put it out there. And then suddenly they find that like all these companies are basing their businesses on their code. And then they suddenly feel like, Oh my God, I have to like show up. You have to show up and take care of this because like, you know, <laughs> yeah. people's builds will break. But then what if, yeah. What if I miss my block and the internet goes down, you know? Before we round off this portion of the conversation, can you speak to the success of GitHub sponsors for you at least? Yeah, I, ju- I just signed up for it, and um, so so far I haven't really I haven't really t- told anybody that I'm on there, so um, I can't really I can't really speak to it. I know some people are having quite good quite good success with it. Is it just standard using the GitHub sponsors uh, uh, yeah. button, or is it others? Just that one uh, project? I think it's just I just put it on standard for now. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, because they've got the sponsor button up in there, so they're telling people for you, even if you're not. Yeah. So one thing I like about GitHub sponsors is that it puts it right there on the page. So um, it's built and it's built directly into GitHub. So in theory, it should be a lot easier for people to contribute um, if they are already, especially if they already have their credit card added to, to GitHub, um, you know, versus going over to Patreon. But um, yeah, yeah. And the other, the other good thing too is that GitHub is matching um, matching the the sponsorships for the first year. So that's pretty good. Sweet. But, um, yeah, but, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I still think I want to. Ch- I'm really curious about other models where you know where where you um, where there's like more of an exchange of value instead of like this donation model. Um, but I mean, in, in general, we need to try more things just as a community. So I'm I'm just glad that there's experimentation and that there are people talking about this. Right. Um, I, I just yeah, I just think we need to try more stuff and see where it goes. So because Jared put out that awesome disclaimer about our relationship with Tidelift in this show, I can share my free opinion without any concerns. And that's why I think I personally like the tie lift model because of that value exchange. Uh, charity doesn't scale very well. It's nice. It does have its benefits. But when we talk about sustainability on the long term, when you exchange value with a company in this case, you know, when, if we're if we're looking at the, the idea of companies being able to use open source and potentially in the Instagram models or others extract a massive amount of monetary value from it how can we direct more of that value back to those who create and maintain and support the open source we rely upon if that's the idea then then you've got someone like tidelift or others who may come up that say hey company if you use for us as project standard and it's in your dependency tree if we can give you assurances would you pay us so we can pay them that's why i like that model because there's this value exchange between the two that when Vi exchanges hands, money often flows. And so that's a good model for me. Charity is great. It works. 
in the case of open source software, I think it has its limits. And I think this is a more viable long-term option to, to lean upon. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I want to quote Dominic Tarr here. Um, he's the guy who maintained EventStream. Uh, that was the package that uh, was in the news a little while ago. I think we talked about it on JS Party. Um, the one where uh, somebody came along and said, hey, um, you haven't been maintaining this. I'll, I'll take care of it for you. And then Dominic gave the, gave the package over to this person who was a complete stranger. Uh, and that person ended up putting a backdoor into the package uh, to, to steal Bitcoin. Uh, and one of the things that happened after that, you know, in the aftermath of that was he wrote this little post where he talked about what it's like to be a maintainer. And he said, um, he said, if it's not fun anymore, you get literally nothing from maintaining a popular package. Uh, and then he gave this really funny anecdote about how he used to be a dishwasher in a restaurant and he did his job a little bit too well. So they promoted him to cook and uh, they only gave him 50 cents an hour more for that, but it was like massively more responsibility and uh, he, he didn't feel like it was worth it. So I think he like asked to be put back as a dishwasher, <laughs> but he, he said that writing a, writing a popular module is like that, but times a million and uh, the pay increase that you get is zero. So <laughs> it's like you just get infinite responsibility, no pay increase. And so, and if you're not using the package anymore, then he feels like, what's the point? So that's something that I think maybe Tidelift or something along these lines can change because instead of popular packages being something that is a sort of like a drain on a drain on you, you know, if, especially if, you know, if it's not fun anymore, or if, if you're not using it anymore, like what if instead it was a, like an asset, you know, something like, you know, it's like, if, oh, well, you know what, if I take care of this package, like Tyler's going to pay me however much per month or, you know, or, or, or some other kind of model where it's like, just imagine how different open source would be if that was the case. I think it'd be so different. Like, you know, now, now suddenly like somebody who normally wouldn't be able to participate in open source because they need to, ha you know, need to get a job or, you know, they, they don't have the free time. They could like adopt a package, you know, and, and, and uh, especially one that nobody wants to take care of, you know, that, that someone's trying to literally give away to the first person who asks. Uh, they could adopt a package like that and even get paid to work on it. That would be so cool. I really think that open source would just be in much better shape. People, people would be, you know, people would say, you know, I want to take, I want to maintain more packages because I'm going to make more money. So like, I, I want to, you know, that would just be so, such a different world than what we live in today. One thing, one lesson I've learned, you didn't say this word for word, but one thing I've learned this year, uh, or something that's been on my, my forefront of, of like, what am I optimizing for is how can I turn my liabilities into assets? And I think that's kind of what you're talking about there is like, how can you turn, what is often a liability or what might be a liability to somebody into an asset. And that's what models like Tidelift do is, is enable that. One tool I like to mention, uh, which is cool and speaks to this and to the experimentation comes from open collective. They have a website backyourstack.com. So we are talking about the, the problem with transitive dependencies and not knowing who your offensive linemen are. Um, this is a place where you can just put your GitHub organization in and it'll analyze, you know, all your code and dig through it. I think it supports JS, PHP, Go, Ruby, and .NET at the time. At right now, but it's open source. You can add other ecosystems. And it will just analyze your software and show you all the different things that you're depending on. Probably similar to the way Thanks works, uh, but it's a nice, easy website that you could send to somebody who's not a command line junkie and show them, like, these are, these are software projects in need, and we could support them via... I think it's obviously for them, it's via Open Collective, but whatever ways. So that's something worth checking out if the listeners haven't heard of backyourstack.com. Cool. For us, let's, let's close with um, maybe some hope, I suppose, for 
maintainers out there. Like you seem to have either thick skin, the tenacity or all the above to keep doing what you're doing. So what have you done to sort of make being a maintainer a little easier day to day? What are some tips and tricks you can kind of share on our way out of this conversation? I, I guess I should say that I think I could do a better job of all those things. You know, what I mean is, uh, you know, I did get burned out um, a little bit uh, in 2018. So I think like knowing when to take a step back and, uh, and you know, rest uh, is, is really important. And also, um, there's this weird feeling of, of, of guilt you sometimes get as a maintainer about like, you know, ah, I owe all these people stuff because I, you know, they're relying on, on my code. And um, that's really not healthy. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think I'll, I've heard a lot of other maintainers talk about this, this weird sort of sense of obligation that you have toward, toward the users of your, your projects. Yeah, I, I don't think it's helpful. Um, I, I, I think that's sort of been the most, the thing that's been the least helpful to me as a maintainer. So I, I, I don't know, finding ways to not feel that, that sense of, of guilt and just remembering that, you know, that open source is a gift to the world. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's like me saying, here's some code I wrote and I'm going to put it out there and, you know, you're free to use it uh, to, to, to solve your problems and to help you. And, you know, but I'm not necessarily promising that I'm going to hold your hand forever with this code and I'm going to fix every problem that might arise for the, you know, for the indefinite future. And, you know, that's not, that's not part of the promise. Um, and just remembering that, you know, and just, just contributing when I, when I can, when I feel like I can, you know, um, and just remembering that it's, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So. Well, we appreciate your willingness to experiment, your willingness to share your ideas. Uh, you said earlier that I want to give my code away as a gift to the world. And we certainly appreciate that as well. And we appreciate, you know, all the ways possible to enable open source software maintainers to live the lifestyle of a maintainer, which is whether it's a network of value or if it's financial value, whatever the value it is that you're seeking. I, you know, we here at Changelog want to enable stories like this to be shared and uh, the opportunity to do the things we love. Because you said that you, you quoted Dominic, if it's not fun anymore, what's the point, right? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to uh, leave people with the impression that uh, that being a maintainer is uh, not um, you know not a good idea. I, I think that's really that's not what that's not the message. Even though we have been focusing a little bit on the, the sort of maybe the the darker side that isn't told as often, mm -hmm. um, I, I really do feel like being a maintainer has been one of been one of the best things in my life. Um, and I mean, I have friends all over the world now from from going to conferences and I'm such a better programmer. And um, I. I yeah, it's just, it's been incredible. So yeah. uh, if you're on the edge, you know, and I also think that the the financial model thing is like, it's probably going to, I think we're going to figure it out soon. So it might not even be um, a bad time to start if you're, if you're, if you're thinking about, you know, spending more time doing open source, maybe, maybe we'll figure this out soon. Uh, you know, this won't be a thing where you have to choose between, um, you know, doing what you love and uh, putting food on the table. <laughs> well, Frost, thank you so much for your time today. It was awesome. Yeah, of course. Totally happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Changelog. Guess what? We have comments on every single podcast episode. Head to changelog.com. Find this episode and you can discuss it with the community. Huge thanks to Tidelift for their support of our Maintainer Spotlight series. And of course, thanks to Fastly, Rollbar, and Leno for making everything we do possible. Our music is produced by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and 
search for Change Law Master, you'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. It's one feed to rule them all. Again, changelaw.com slash master. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.